Well, during these summer months, we have been making our way through some psalms and exploring what we learn from them about what it means to walk with God through the various ups and downs of life. We began with Psalm 23 and explored the theme of contentment. We then looked at satisfaction from Psalm 16, guilt from Psalm 32, depression from Psalm 42, passion from Psalm 63, envy from Psalm 73, joy from Psalm 98. And today we come to the theme of loneliness, and we're going to look at that from Psalm 139. Now, loneliness is a common human experience. One study said that loneliness affects around 75% of the population. In my opinion, that study was off by about 25%. Because loneliness, in my opinion, affects 100% of the people in this population some of the time. And loneliness is not just a matter of being alone. As you know, one can be alone and not be lonely. And one can be incredibly lonely while completely surrounded by people. So in one place, loneliness is described as being destitute of companionship, as lacking meaningful friendship. What is perhaps most interesting and most telling about our culture is that we live in an age of technology that allows us to be incredibly connected all the time, more so than in any other time in human history through social media. We can literally link up with other people 24 hours a day through a steady stream of Facebook status updates and 140-character tweets. We can text. We can email. We can call, we can contact practically anyone at any time. We are a technically savvy, instantly available, technologically connected people, and yet profoundly lonely. Loneliness is often associated with the people who are single. And while that's certainly true, because after all, it was God who told us in the beginning that it's not good for man to be alone. And those of us who are single will often gather together with the church week in and week out with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are married and seeing the marriage of our brothers and sisters and the joy of family and all those things can often be a painful reminder to ourselves that we have not yet received that blessing and we are waiting for it. And that can cause a backlash of loneliness. However, marriage is not the solution to loneliness. Just ask any married person. Married people as well can experience profound loneliness, whether it just be the gradual distance that can set in over time amidst the busyness of juggling the schedules of work and children and other responsibilities, or the loneliness that can come from separation or divorce or even death. We can experience loneliness in different ways, but the reality is that we all experience it from one degree or to one degree or another. And if you look back at the beginning of the Bible, loneliness is a product of the fall of mankind. In the beginning, when God created us, male and female, in the image of God, in the beginning, in the garden, placed us in the garden, and we were in perfect relationship with each other, with, with humanity, with creation, and with God himself. And when Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate that apple, or whatever fruit it was, when they ate that from the tree that God told them not to eat, 
While God had previously given Adam the assessment, it's not good for man to be alone, Adam didn't come up with that. He was perfectly content. He was living in perfect harmony with God and with his with creation at that time, and God gave him a wife knowing that it's not good that he be alone. But when he sinned, it introduced disharmony into his relationship with his wife, introduced disharmony into creation itself, and it fractured the relationship that man had with God, and loneliness entered the world, along with many other sins or products of the fall. So once Adam and Eve sinned, guilt set in, fear came, and alienation became commonplace in the human experience. And all those carry with it the preconditions for loneliness. Now, it should be said that feelings of loneliness are not necessarily sinful, although the ways that we respond to those feelings can certainly lead to sin. We can seek to solve our loneliness by turning to any number of empty avenues. Shopping, television, drinking, eating, whatever. And so what do we do when we're lonely? Well, Psalm 139 gives us a vision of David and his relationship with God. And the things that he points out about the relationship that he has with God, as I read through this psalm, just seem to drive out or, or give, the, give all the, the power that would be needed and all the vision that is needed to combat loneliness and to understand how it can be solved and dealt with. And so we're going to look at Psalm 139 this, this morning, and we're going to pull out four specific truths from this passage and specifically apply it to loneliness, the area of loneliness. So here's the first truth, and it's in verses 1 to 6. And it's God knows us intimately and thoroughly. God knows us intimately and thoroughly. Now, sometimes we are profoundly lonely because we have a sense that no one truly knows us. We are, in fact, afraid of letting ourselves get close to other people for fear that they will reject us when they find out who we really are. And many of you have possibly experienced that. You've opened yourself up. You've tried to be vulnerable. You've tried to build close friendships with other people. And for whatever reason, they rub you raw or let you down. However, what the psalmist tells us here is that God knows us intimately and completely. Verse 1, O Lord, this is David, praying to God, relating to God. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot contain it. Now, it's very important to point out who God knows in this way. He knows David. But the first words of this psalm, O Lord, are very important to talk about because they give us the context for understanding who it is that has a relationship with God in this way. Because in your Bible, you will notice, O Lord, L-O-R-D, is capitalized. Whenever we see that in the Bible, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. 
And what it's saying is David has a covenant relationship with God. He has come into a relationship with God by believing God's promises, by trusting God's word, by turning from his sin, by embracing God by faith and all of his promises that he made to him. And that's the same way that we come into, come into relationship with God. We, God makes promises to us. And we'll see some of these promises later on. But for right now, God makes those promises. We know what those promises are. We receive those promises. We repent of our sin and we, we, we come to him. And what we see here is David is relating to God on the basis of this covenant relationship he has with him. And David's confidence from this relationship in this relationship comes from God's knowledge of him. You notice all the things that he points out about God's knowledge. God knows when he gets up. God knows when he goes to bed. God sees his thoughts. God's acquainted with every word on his tongue before it even comes out. He says God hems him in behind and before. That is, he guards him and watches over him, knows about him, lays his hand on him, is very personally involved in his life. And David concludes verse 6 by saying, such knowledge is too wonderful to me, too high, I can't attain it. God knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your thoughts. He knows when you get up, what time you go to bed, what time you wake up, where you're going, what you're speaking, what you're thinking, even before you think it or speak it. That's what Psalm 139, 1-6 teaches. And for some of us, for God's people, that is a profoundly encouraging thought. That God knows us completely better than we know ourselves. He's not surprised by our thoughts. He's not surprised by our words. He was waiting for us to get up before the alarm clock went off. But for some of us, others, that's a profoundly disturbing thought. Because that means, as one of my friends said one time, when he had said something he shouldn't have, he said, Boy, I hope God didn't see that one coming. I said he did. It's a profoundly disturbing thought to, to, to know that God knows you that thoroughly and you can't hide from him. And contrary to all the ways you may trick people here at church or in your family or all the things, he knows. He knows. He knows all of you before you even do it. But David intends this to be a comfort for us as God's people. And so how does this truth affect us when we're lonely? Well, if God sees you, knows you this thoroughly, and still, by his grace, receives you and accepts you and welcomes you, I mean, these thoughts are wonderful to David then you don't have to be afraid of the approval or disapproval of others. And therefore, you are free to pursue the kind of community and friendship for which you're made without the fear that if you expose yourself, your world is going to come crashing down when people don't respond the way you think they should. Because if God in heaven knows you this thoroughly and loves you this well, then let human opinion come and go. 
Some of what keeps you from intentional relationship with people and some of you what keeps you from close friendship is a fear of being known. But if God knows you this way, has received you through Christ, has forgiven you, has cleansed you, then you are free because of that good news to now pursue meaningful friendship in this church, in your families. And if you refuse to do that, it's because you really don't believe that. You don't believe the truth of this passage. So God's intimate and complete knowledge of us is meant to be a comfort for us and meant to be an incentive and an encouragement to us when we are lonely because God knows us that deeply. Second truth is not only God does, not, does God know us intimately and completely, but God is with us continually and constantly. He is with us continually and constantly. Look at verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, sometimes we are tempted to believe that we that when we're lonely, that no one is with us. We are all alone. There is no one who um, knows about us, much, much less no one who knows about us, much less is, is with us in our struggles. But that is never the case for God's children. God's people are with him constantly, or rather should I say he is with his people constantly. Notice what David says here. He says, where can I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, the obvious answer to that is nowhere. There is nowhere David can go where he is outside the presence of God. And then in verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, he's like, that's where you live. You're there. Or if I go down to the, the grave, if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there too. So if I live, if I ascend to heaven, if I die, if I go down to the grave, you are there. So I can't get away from you. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, probably a reference to the Mediterranean on the other side. And even there you shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. So if I get as far away as I can think on the earth, even there you're there. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the grave, you're there. If I go anywhere on earth, you're there. He's talking vertical and horizontal. No getting outside the presence of God. Then he says in verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. If I somehow am in the dark, no way God's with me. Then he says, no, the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as day. Kind of going back to the beginning of creation. God was there even when the darkness was there and he spoke the light. He was there. The darkness wasn't any hindrance to the presence of God. And that's the same thing David's picking up here. So he said, vertically, if I go to heaven or the grave, horizontally, if I go catch the wings of the morning, catch a cloud and fly across the earth, there's no way I'm getting away from the presence of God. God's presence, his special presence is in heaven, but his real presence is also in the earth everywhere. And so, David, you're never alone. You are never, ever alone. Now, again, this is profoundly comforting for us as God's people. 
Because it reminds us that even in our darkest moments, even in our most fearful times, even when we think that no one is with us, there is no getting outside the presence of God. And he has pledged himself to you to never leave you or forsake you. And again, this is incredibly troubling for people who are not in right relationship with God through Christ. Because it means that no matter where you go, not only does God know, but God is there. He's there. So God's intimate knowledge of us, verses 1 to 6, and God's continual presence with us are meant to encourage us in our lonely times. We are never alone. We are not isolated. We are always in his presence. Number three. Not only is God know us intimately and God with us continually, but God created us specifically. God created us specifically. Verses 13 to 18. For you formed my inward parts, that is, your organs, on the inside of your body. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is involved in the intimate knitting of every human being, which is why abortion is such a tragedy and a wicked sin. It's an assault on the creation of God. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So David said, God, you created me, you formed me, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Then verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, made in secret. Said, even then you knew my frame. You knew what I was going to grow up to look like. You knew what I was going to be. It wasn't hidden from you even when you were knitting me together in the secret place, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw, now that's probably, now you stop there, that's probably a reference to the first creation of man. Being intricately woven in the depths of the earth, God gathered dust from the earth and made man. So he's not saying that every human being is is intricately woven from dust, but he's referring back to the creation again and saying, just as you created that first man and fashioned him, so you create me in my mother's womb the same way. Your hands are as involved in my creation as they were in Adam's. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So David says, listen, you made me with your own hands, skillfully working to get, working, putting, putting me together in the womb of my mother. And not only that, part of that whole creation was also the full ordination of all of my life so that the book was in the book was written, every one of them, all the days that I would live, and specifically what would happen to me on all of those days before one of them ever happened. So David is, is now stepping back even further. He's talked about God's knowledge, he's talked about God's presence, and now he says, You were involved. Not only you don't not only just know me, you're not only with me, but you made me. You're the author of my life. Now, sometimes we're tempted when we're lonely to to the fact that no one cares for us, 
that no one knows us, that no one's with us. But another temptation in loneliness is to feel like our life is going nowhere and has no meaning, that it's directionless, that it's purposeless, that it's meaningless, that you're just lost in the crowd. And what this says to us this morning as God's people is God made you. You're not a cosmic accident. You're here for a reason. God has numbered your days, and he's determined your destiny. He made you. He directs your steps. He cares for you. The days that you're experiencing have been ordered by him. It's not just happening for no reason. And while this is true for God's people, this is also true of everyone whom God creates, whether or not they're in right relationship with God or not. You, too, were made by God personally. And you, too, your days were ordained by him, including the day right now where you're hearing the gospel and hearing about your own creation. God ordered that. God ordered you here. God brought you here. And that's immensely encouraging. Because the God right now that you may not be in right relationship with nevertheless has pursued you and loved you and brought you here so that you could hear about what he's like to his people. And God's knowledge is intimate. God's presence is constant. God's care is intentional. So how do we respond to all this? How do we respond to this? Well, David teaches us in verses 17 to 24 how we ought to respond. And I want, to, I want us to, to point out three ways, okay? Three, three things, that, three ways of how we're supposed to respond. First of all, we're supposed to re- respond with love to God. We're supposed to respond with commitment to God's cause. And we're supposed to respond with a desire for deeper relationship with God. That's how we're supposed to respond to this great truth. So the first one, we're supposed to respond with love to God and trust in God. Verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Now, key word, precious. Precious. This truth means a lot to David. This truth about God's knowledge of him and God's presence with him and God's care for him is not like, yeah, duh, he's God. But this is precious to him. This means something to him. This is what he builds his life on, in, and around. Is God's knowledge and God's care and God's presence. And that's the response of a true child of God. God's The truth about God's knowledge and God's care and God's presence is precious. Then he says in verse 18, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. He said, I look out at the beach or the sand, the coast there of the sea. And were I to count up every single one of those grains of sand, still it wouldn't, they wouldn't even be able to exceed the thoughts of God toward me. The concern of God for me. If I were to take every one of those grains of sand and say, That grain of sand is a thought of God. That grain of sand is a thought of God concerning me. That grain of sand is a thought of God concerning me. That grain of... If I were to take all those grains, I still couldn't add up the amount of commitment that God has toward me and love for me as 
his child, and specifically as his king here. And so when we're tempted in our loneliness to be preoccupied with our own feelings and our own problems and our own issues, this truth is meant to get us outside of ourselves. It's meant to get us into God, into enjoying this truth that liberates us from constant introspection and worry and loneliness. Another reason that we tend to be lonely, and this is what's my second point, is because we're not committed to the cause of God. We're not throwing ourselves into what God has called us to be and do. Now, verse 19 through 22 mark a sharp change in the tone of this psalm. And it's caused some people to think, well, maybe this is two psalms that they lump together because the, 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 uh, the, 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 it seems to be such different themes all of a sudden. I mean, he's been talking about how wonderful it is for God to know him and how wonderful it is for God's presence to be with him and his care for him. And all of a sudden he says, God, would you kill everyone who doesn't love you? I mean, it seems like, it's like, whoa, what's going on, David? Keep in mind David's posture. I mean, what David is here, okay? This is, David is the king of Israel. And he is writing this psalm still in that situation as the king of Israel. So that in, informs his prayer here. And informs God's covenant commitment to Israel as a people in the Old Testament. And he's saying, God, would you put to death all those that are at war with you? Would you preserve your people, Israel? Would you cause them to not only, um, to, to not only, would you cause the wicked to not only depart, but would you cause your people to be protected? Now, listen to what David says here in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Now, David is a, is a, is a man after God's own heart. He loves God. He's a tender person. And he expects God to do this. He expects that God will slay the wicked. They speak against you with malicious intent. That is, they set themselves up against you and your ways. And they fight against you. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You say, what in the world are we supposed to make of that? I thought we were supposed to love people. We are. We are supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, just like Jesus told us. But also, we serve a Jesus that we know one day is going to come back with a sword and according to the book of Revelation is going to run everyone through who doesn't believe in him and doesn't follow him. And people are going to cry out for the mountains and rocks to come and crush them to save them from Jesus, that meek and tender peasant in Palestine. And what David picks up here is, God, this is so true of you and your people. This relationship that I enjoy, this knowledge that I have, that you have of me, is so precious to me. This presence that you have given me with you is so precious to me. The fact that you knit me together in my mother's womb is so precious to me. And there are people out in the world who don't give a rip about that. 
who instead of cherishing what has been created in the womb, kill it. Instead of whom treasure the knowledge of God, sin directly against him. And who, instead of desiring the presence of God, try to get as far away from him as they can. God's not going to do anything about that. David says God will. And David says his commitment is to God. And he, therefore, if, you're, if you love God, you love what he loves. You hate what he hates. And that's what David's saying here. He's not saying, I hate, I hate every single thing and I'm just a hateful person. No, he's saying, God, I love you. And I love your ways. And I love what you want. And while I'm called to love and pray for people, because I love you in comparison, I want everything you want. And so he can speak with strong language like, I loathe those who rise up against you. There's a deep-seated in my gut when I see and hear, like someone, someone came to me. I was at a family reunion yesterday, and someone came to me. Uh, we, were, we were there with the family, and she said, did you hear about what happened in the neighborhood right over there? We were in a park in Hendersonville, Tennessee. She said, um, mother just killed both of her kids in that neighborhood in a tub. And nobody even knew about it until, I guess, a couple of days after that or something or a day, maybe the same day. I'm getting some of the details wrong. But when that, she said that, oh, my gut just sunk. I'm not supposed to hate that. God hates that. And that's what David's saying here. Do I not hate those who hate you? I hate that. And in a sense, you can say, I hate the woman that did that. Even while you're broken and hurting because you know that sin and the ravages of the fall and all the things that have happened in this earth contributed to all that. So you grieve, but you hate at the same time. It's a complex emotion that only Christians can experience. Because the world reacts in one of two ways. They react, you know, I don't care, or they react in complete anger. And that's, hatred is different than anger. You can, you can deeply loathe something and hate it with a complete hatred. And nevertheless, David says, I want you to slay him. I want you, God, to come and make everything right. And so, my point is, is that when we're in this relationship with God, what happens is our, our desires become progressively more God's desires. What our wants are are progressively governed by what God wants here. And our commitments are shaped by his commitments. So that's his commitment to, to God and to his cause. So he looks out and prays for God's justice to come. He's not praying for God to give people anything they don't deserve. (laughs) People deserve it. And he's saying, God, would you please execute justice? He's a king. He's looking out and he's saying, God, bring your justice to the earth. Make it right. 
I love those whom you love. I hate those whom you hate. I want you to bring justice to the earth as the true king. And then in verses 23 and 24, he turns to himself. And this is interesting because as I was reading this, I thought, why all of a sudden this prayer about God to search him? This is what makes Christians different. (laughs) David's here saying, oh, God, that you would slay the wicked, bloodthirsty men. My soul hates. Would you please do away with him? He says, search me, oh, God, purge me of my evil, too. Purge me of my evil. Test me and know if this prayer was even tempered the way it needed to be. And, of course, it is. But God... Search me and know my heart. Make sure I'm not responding vindictively or out of sinful anger. Search me, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. And if there is any, any evil, grievous way in my life, please lead me out of it and lead me into the way everlasting. So he has a desire for God to know him more, to lead him, to change him. And that's the sign of relationship with God as well. Relationship with God is built on loving him and counting things, counting the things that he says about himself toward us precious. It's also built around commitment to God and to his purposes and his cause. And it's also built around a desire to be changed by God, to have our lives more and more changed. So let me conclude with these questions for you. First of all, do you know this God? Do you know the God that's revealed himself in Psalm 139 as the God who knows you completely, whose presence is with you, and who cares for you in these ways, who created you? Do you know this God? Secondly, do you count these things as precious to you? Do they govern your thoughts? Do they govern your heart? Do they bring you back to sanity in your temporary moments of insanity? Do they recalibrate your soul? Thirdly, are you committed? Is your heart becoming more and more one with God's own heart? Or do you have problems with the way he runs the universe and and concerns about the way he deals out justice? And fourthly, are you open to being ongoing and continually changed by God? Right now, are you being last month, two months, six months, one year, five years? How's your life changing? Is God searching you and knowing you and finding those grievous ways in you because they're there and they're in me? And is he leading you out of them into the way everlasting more and more and more? Ask yourself those questions. I think those are the questions that David would want us to ask. But my question as we read this psalm, and with this I'm going to close, is how can God be this way? Because if God knows us this way, then he knows all the things that I've done and all the things that I've not done that he's told me to do. He knows all that about me. And if he created me, he made me, and he knows all this about me, and he knows that there are many grievous ways in me, sinful ways in me, that there's wickedness in my heart and in my life, how can he pledge himself to me like this? How can he promise I will, according to 
verse 5, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. How can his hand being laid upon me happen? How can God lay his hand of love and grace upon me when what I deserve is the hand of his judgment laying upon me? How can that be? And the answer is where all answers are found in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the point of the Psalms. Jesus resolves all the tension in the Psalms. Because what we find out is Jesus is the one. If we go to the New Testament, Colossians 1.16, Jesus was the one who made us. And he's the one who knows us completely. Before a word was on the tongue of his disciples, he knew it. And in order for us to gain back the right to God's presence, he had to suffer the loss of it. So he left heaven and came down to earth and lived a perfect life, lived in our place for all the grievous ways that we have lived. All the things that if God searched us and know, know, knows, knew us the way David prays here in Psalm 23, or Psalm, uh, the verses 23 and 24, if we pray, God, search me and know me and see if there's any grievous way. Yes, he found one. You're going to hell. Jesus lived a perfect life. And then he took that perfect life to the cross to experience loneliness like no man has ever experienced, being forsaken and abandoned by God. And he did all of this willingly, even though he knew what kind of people we were created to be and what kind of people we had become. And so he died so that God could search us and know us, and instead of condemning us for what he finds, forgive us, receive us, and lead us in the everlasting way. Let me close with this quote by J.I. Packer. This is unspeakable comfort. In knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Isn't that good? I mean, you find out things about yourself you're so discouraged about. And isn't it encouraging that it doesn't discourage God? Because he found those things, and he knows those things about you before they ever came to your attention. And they don't quench his desire to bless you and do you good. Then he closes like this. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see, and am I glad. (laughs) And that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself which in all conscience is enough. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me to be his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. We cannot work through these thoughts out here, but merely mention them. But to merely mention them is enough to show how much it means to know not merely what that we know God, but that he knows us. Let's pray. Father, it is a great, great comfort to us today to know these things about you. You are incredible and you're wonderful. And these thoughts to us are precious. So thank you for knowing us so thoroughly, so intimately. How could you not? You made us, and you ordained all of our days before one of them ever happened. Much more, your presence is with us continually. 
all because Jesus lost it for those three hours on the cross as he was abandoned, forsaken, receiving in his body the penalty that is due all the sins that we have committed. Father, we, 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 we confess to you this morning that we deserve to find our place in verses 17 through 22 of this passage. We are the wicked who deserve to be slain. We were those people. We were those who set, set ourselves up against you and your ways, who lived our own lives, our own way, doing our own thing in our own strength. We were those. We took your name in vain. We called ourselves Christians when we had no business taking that name upon ourselves. And nevertheless, that didn't quench your desire to pursue us, bless us, come after us. Thank you. Thank you for being this God. Thank you for coming after us in Jesus Christ to restore us to yourself and bring us back into right relationship. Father, pray specifically for those of us who are really alone these days, lonely, lonely brothers and sisters. Would you draw near to them with these truths and comfort them? And would they, would these truths free them to pursue the sort of human community that they need as well? They were made both for relationship with you and relationship with others. And we pray that these truths would encourage them and set their hearts free. And for those of us who are here this morning who are outside of Christ, who are not a Christian, or maybe just a Christian in name only, pray specifically that their loneliness and their sense of need would drive them to you, the only place where true settledness and true rest can happen. So lead them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.